Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com slash AMA. And we do have to be relevant, efficient, and economical. Those are the three touchstones, relevant, efficient, and economical. We can't sustain $1.7 trillion in student debt. You know, we, we need to make this affordable and we've got to do it efficiently and we have to respect the learner's time. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 288 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which features a conversation with return guest Ray Schroeder. Ray Schroeder is Professor Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the University of Illinois Springfield, and also Senior Fellow for UPCEA, the University Professional and Continuing Education Association. Jeff and Ray discuss COVID's indelible impact on teaching and learning, the metaverse, blockchain, non-fungible tokens, artificial intelligence, teaching ahead, and how Google's wildly popular certificates make the case for relevant, efficient, economical learning going forward. As a leading expert in online education, Ray brings his unmatched knowledge and passion to the conversation. Jeff spoke with Ray in December 2021. One of the things I remember distinctly about you at this point is you were a featured speaker at our Learning Technology Design Conference, uh, virtual conference in 2020, and that was in in February. So it was right before everything really hit with with COVID and, and the pandemic. And I, I think you were really the first person I heard speak about how this was going to have an impact on the world of education generally, the world of continuing education, professional development. And it did. Obviously, it had a, a huge impact. And I'm wondering now, you know, rolling forward close to, to two years, um, from your perspective, you know, what, if anything, has this whole COVID era changed about how we should now be thinking about lifelong learning, continuing education, both from the perspective of, you know, being an individual that has to to do that, but also from the perspective of organizations that support lifelong learning and continuing education? Well, that's a a great and large question. Certainly, COVID was an inflection point for all of us in the learning area. You know, it was rather than bringing those learners to us, whether it's our branch office in Atlanta, or if it's a corporate office in New York, we might bring in our employees and train them, or a university might bring students, of course, to the campus. Instead, it's bringing the learning to the learners. And so that training 
has changed in delivery mode. And we're going to see future changes. That's something we'll be talking about, I'm sure. But COVID has had, was that inflection point. It really changed the whole landscape because we were so face-to-face centric and we now have become distant centric and we're reaching out directly to those who receive the learning from us. And do you think it's at this point changed people's expectations of online learning significantly? I mean, one of my kind of operating theories at this point is you have an awful lot of people who either weren't doing much or weren't doing any online learning before all of this hit, suddenly got forced into it, now have quite a bit of experience with different types of online education opportunities and may have a a different level of expectation around what, what they should be getting from that. Absolutely. You know, I I think that the changes are not only in the technological delivery mode, but also it's in the convenience and facility that the learners have found because some of it can be asynchronous. It can be repeated. You can go back. You can go at double speed in some cases. So it gives you flexibility over the delivery of content and the reception of content, and it allows you to go back. You know, you you might come back with a big folder from a training and going through that folder with pages falling out, you know what it looks like, and and those six PowerPoints per page images are really difficult. But if you can go to a website and click, click, bring it right up in pristine form, It's really advantageous. And so as we develop, as we move toward what we call loosely the fourth industrial revolution, we have access and we have instant video, audio, and data access. So I think that's a a substantive change. I think most all learners appreciate it. And most of them appreciate particularly the opportunity to do it any place Anytime. And I wonder what you're hearing from, I guess in, in your world, it would be primarily a faculty sort of perspective. I think in my world, we tend to talk more about the sort of subject matter experts, the presenters, the, the facilitators, but the people who are responsible for delivering and facilitating, facilitating these online education experiences. What's your perception of how well teachers have risen to the occasion and, and what, what are they still struggling with in, in this world where Online is now a a permanent, uh, really a majority feature at this point. It may balance out some as we go forward, but most teaching is having to happen online. How are teachers doing with that? Well, it certainly has changed from the beginning. You know, a brief anecdote. I had an email from a a good friend who uh, directed the uh, online operation at a Big Ten university in 2020. So it was in March. It was just two days before spring break began. And he said, oh my, I I just got an email from our provost. We're not coming back. We have 8,000 on-campus classes. What are we going to do? We have 10 days. And I mean, he was not in a panic, but you could hear in his voice, this is a daunting, daunting project. And so, so many of us, both in the corporate world and in the uh, academic world, had to adapt because we had scheduled these trainings and now we weren't going to do them face-to-face. So 
what we found generally was that evaluation of quality and responsiveness was not very high. And, and in fact, we used to call it, we still do, we call it remote teaching rather than online learning because, you know, where was the instructional design? Where was the development of these materials? And so for that first semester, it wasn't very good. It was a little better in the fall and even better now and in the spring of this year and in the fall of this year. So during that time, those subject matter experts and those faculty adapted, and we were able to bring them along in a rather rapid fashion. But it's really to the credit of the instructional designers, the developers, the video experts in all of our shops who did this in a way that they were able to bring along and develop people who weren't used to this kind of change. What, what do you think the biggest hurdle for your average faculty member is when, when, they, when they have to go online and you know be in, whether it's a Zoom environment or whatever it is, instead of standing in front of that classroom? Well, I, you know, I recall because this happened to me, albeit 25 years ago, but for the first roughly half of my uh, academic career, I taught in person. I literally had lecture notes that had changed to yellow over couple of decades because I was teaching from those old lecture notes. And then to go to this format, eh, you know, there's a piece of vanity if you're going to use video and we have to help the uh, uh, subject matter experts get past that and understand that they want authenticity. They don't want, you know, you're not a, a model. They want you to be authentic. So that's one piece. Second is There are so many of our experts who are concerned about their lack of technological expertise, and they feel they've got to do it all. And generally, that's not the case. Generally, we're supporting them. We have an infrastructure at our corporation, at our campus that that helps them with the video, helps them and provides them with tools so they can do both synchronous and asynchronous in a comfortable way. So it's it's anxiety. And, and many times you see people saying, oh, I could never do that. That won't work. It just won't work. And yet it does. It works very well. But when you probe beyond what they say to what they mean is, I'm afraid. I'm fearful of doing this and help me. And so when you do help them, then uh, you become fast friends and it works well for everybody. If you're looking for ways to support those you work with and serve, we have two offerings that can help. To help learning businesses, Leading Learning offers a range of complementary educational resources, including this podcast. Leading Learning's parent company, Tagoras, provides in-depth, customized consulting services to help learning businesses assess their markets, formulate strategy, and select appropriate technologies. We've provided relatively little between these two options historically. In 2022, we aim to change that with the launch of two new offerings. If you're looking for a practical, concrete way to help your presenters deliver more effective, impactful learning experiences, we have a course called Presenting for Impact that can help you do just that. 
If you're looking for a structured, intentional way to make your learning business perform better, the Maturity Accelerator program is designed to help organizations effectively leverage the Tagoras Learning Business Maturity Model in a way that aligns with their specific situation and needs. If you're interested in either or both of these professional development offerings, check the show notes for this podcast episode to learn more or drop us a note at leadinglearning at tagoras.com. See the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 288 to learn more. Now, back to Jeff's conversation with Ray. And we've been touching on this loosely in the conversation so far, but obviously there's a huge technological component at the core of this. They're the technologies that we've all gotten familiar with at this point, like Zoom. Um, We're using Zoom right now to, to record this. People have become familiar with that, but but that's obviously not the limit of, of what can happen online. And we're seeing things emerge now that really could be transformative. And I, I know this is something, you know, you write about things like the metaverse and what uh, blockchain is making possible. Could could you talk a little bit about your perspective on, you know, the technological changes that are, that are impacting and that are going to continue to impact uh, professional continuing online education? Yes, certainly. The, the technology marches forward. And in some cases, it harkens back. You know, I recall it was in 2005, six, and seven that I worked with a product from Linden Labs that recently has been uh, bought out by a group of investors. It may have a different name now, but they had what was called Second Life, and it was a metaverse 3D environment. We had used that actually for delivery of, of class sessions, if you will, and we had students become avatars. And, uh, you know, I I recall building within the metaverse, a virtual building. In my case, it was a student union where people could come in and and view a video. So there'd be a video screen there and it looked, you know, like maybe a cartoon, but a good representation of a video screen. And these various avatars would gather there and interact with one another and pause the video and have a conversation and rewind and say, see, look here, this is what happened. And they were able to control the medium as well as the conversation. So the metaverse now has moved on. And you may have read, as I mentioned, my 10-year-old grandson, who is uh, very much into Roblox and Minecraft, even at 10 years old, uh, our children are using metaverse environments to interact, to play games, and to build things. And that really is good. So, you know, it's exciting because they continue to advance while we tended to pause on the metaverse, waiting for improved lower latency transmission through 5G or 10G on cable or satellite communication. The latency issue is one in which when you say something or or take a step or issue a command, it's the amount of time for that to get to the, the core computer and then come back to you. So if you have high latency, like old 4G technology, and if you use goggles, you might trip, you know, or you might feel a little nauseous because you walk and things are lagging behind you. In this case, we now have delivery technologies to the mobile learner that will and and the office learner that will allow us to have 
true low latency engagements. And, and that technology makes a huge difference. And for us, in for those in higher ed, it means you can use a chemistry lab. You can physically pick up a beaker and, and titrate a solution. And for those of us in industry, we can do tactile, hands-on kinds of trainings that we couldn't really do in the past. So students uh, and employees can have their hands in gloves. They can feel what it feels like. They can go through an operation and do it again and again and again. You know, I mean, one of the uh, more important areas, at least, you know, in, in my advanced age, is in the medical profession where we see residents, surgical residents, go through a simulated surgery in this kind of an environment once or twice, and then they step into the surgery suite and do it on you. So I, I welcome that kind of experience. I love your perspective because I, I feel like uh, you've written about this and I agree with it, that at least in terms of the ability to deliver those experiences and participate in those experiences, we seem to be at a real tipping point mainly because the bandwidth is now there, that the hardware is there, that we can we can do this and it can really feel like a, a realistic experience. The pushback that I'll always get from any organization I talk to is on the creation side, being able to create these experiences. It feels labor intensive. It feels expensive. Most of them are just daunted by that, scared by that. Do you, do you see that changing? Are we at a tipping point on that yet or is that still coming? We are at a tipping point and in, in the coding and and we have facilitated coding into kind of equivalent of a word processor. So you say what you want to do, and then it gives you the code for that. You know, again, forgive me, but uh, my 10-year-old grandson was just showing me, uh, you know, I've got a bouncing ball, and we're looking at gravity and the inclination of, of this uh, platform. So how would it bounce? So I can do this and this and this, and now I can make it bounce and I can bounce it back. Well, here's a fifth grader and he's doing this for fun. And, you know, well, of course, I, I think he's great. You know, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of fifth graders who can do the same thing. So as we're educating and growing these youth, in this environment as developers of their own building games. They're motivated to build games because they get that reinforcement. They love the immersion. So we're seeing that change. And, you know, it's interesting because Minecraft, you know, and Roblox are, are two of the older 3D environments, and yet they are right on the cutting edge. They are ready to take a leadership role as we apply this to business. And I think Roblox is actually creating educational type experiences now, correct? Yeah. The metaverse is, is one part of this. And I'm, I'm personally fascinated by how it all turns out. As I think you noted in one of your recent articles, you know, this originally came out of Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson talking about this as a term. I, I love that book. I love the, the way he describes the metaverse. And this was, you know, decades ago that he was talking about this. You know, I'm wondering if it's going to be like that, if it's really going to be that immersive and sort of slipping in and out of, you know, virtual and, and real world. And nobody knows at this point, I guess, you know, crystal ball on that. But the impact of that obviously could be huge, sort of no matter what form this ultimately takes. Mm -hmm. 
the other trend or another trend, because there are many out there right now that I wanted to be sure to get you to, to comment on is blockchain and the, the emergence of blockchain and some of the technologies around that. I know specifically you've, you've recently written some about NFTs or non-fungible tokens and DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Could you talk a little bit about what those are and how you see them potentially having an impact? Yeah, absolutely. One of my good friends is Rovi Brannan. He's a, a associate provost, as I recall, at the University of Washington. And we were having a discussion and, well, it was face-to-face, so it probably was two years ago. But he had read the book about life expectancy and the expectation that one might live 100 years on standard, that medicine may get us that. Of course, we didn't have COVID uh, yet at that time, but still. And he said, this gives rise to what several of us are calling the 60-year learner. And so we see a whole long period of time of continuing education and that professional education taking place in our jobs and as we change careers. And so we're seeing this this whole development. Well, now pause there for just a second, step back to college where if you know you graduate, you get a or not, you get a transcript. The college owns that transcript, and that's that's wrong. That is absolutely wrong. The student earned those credits, took those courses. And so a university might block you getting that transcript because you have parking fees too. Well, that's absolutely wrong. So one of the concepts that MIT championed a few years ago was beginning to put the transcript on the blockchain. And as that moved forward, we saw concurrent development, non-fungible tokens, which could represent what you have created and kind of validate that's yours. And that could be an internship, could be a course taken at your place of work or elsewhere. And those should be under the control of the learner. The learner ought to be able to assemble these together in a way that they can be used by HR prospective employers as they're looking at hiring you, among others. And so I think we see this really growing and continuing to grow. I see it on the blockchain, probably with, you know, NFTs. And it could be that HR might use DAOs, DAOs, you know, to sort through all those portfolios and and choose the ones that have the proper NFTs that they're seeking. So, you know, I see this unfolding. I'm not sure what chain it's going to take. I, I Maybe across chains. I, you know, we're, we're really at the beginning part of this development. But the key thing is that control, validation, certification of your learning belongs to you. And you will be able to present them in proper context, validated by the blockchain. So I think this is an important step as we move forward. And I really think that we're going to find so many employers using, for efficiency's sake and reach sake, using the blockchain, especially because 
more and more employees are preferring to work from home and not changing. So it may be the ideal employee for you, maybe in Guam, you know, and yet they're virtually there with you, if you will. But you don't know about them because you only advertised in the New York publications. It seems like an interesting sort of corollary to this or something that flows out of it is, I mean, the, the role of the, the learner herself and in essence, the responsibility of the learner herself, because you're, as you said, you're embarking on this sort of 60 years that these days, or in, at least in coming days, people are going to have to navigate a little bit differently than they, they have before, because you're, you're talking about accumulating all of these essentially credentials along the way, but they may be less formal than the types of credentials that we think of right now, or or they're sort of, they emerge a little more organically than the way credentials do now. And, you know, you're, you're basically creating this track record that you're carrying throughout your career of the learning that you've done and the verification of that learning. And I mean, I suspect most people don't really sort of think about their their life and their learning and their careers that way now. We, we need to prepare people for this, it seems like. Jeff, you're absolutely right. And you know, one of the data points that I commonly cite surprises many people. And it is that the average tenure of an American worker, and this is before the great resignation, the average tenure with an employer is just four years. So every four years, if we're changing employers, We need to validate ourselves all over, and we probably need new credentials. We probably need professional ed, continuing ed, to develop ourselves into the new position. And so how do we keep that trail moving in a linear fashion and that we don't drop pieces along the way? And this is it. We create, if you will, our folder that we cultivate, that we curate all those educational experiences. And we're not, I mean, we certainly include all the trainings and courses and whatnot and internships, but we also add those personalized experiences that add to that, you know, maybe we did something for a nonprofit along the way. So in any event, this is something new for all of us to begin to curate. And it seems like it might finally be a a really strong basis for for competency-based education, which has sort of been a low-level buzz for I don't know how long in in academia and to a certain extent in the the association world, but never really seems to fully come to fruition. But, But this, it seems like, would be strong support structure for that. Absolutely. Jeff Salingo recently wrote a column on the very topic, are we finally ready? for competency-based education. And I mean, we should be, we must be. The the best learner is doing. (laughs) The best way we learn, most of us learn, is by doing and by being successful in doing that. And it it seems like another corollary or extension of, of, you know, what's being made possible particularly by something um, like blockchain in my mind, is it the major players in lifelong learning are probably going to have to think a little bit differently. And, and I think more collaboratively than they potentially have in the past, because you know, you've typically had sort of a, a siloed environment where you've got 
businesses, corporations, maybe doing training in a certain way, maybe bringing in commercial training or having the internal L and D. So they're, they're working with their employees to do that. You've got higher education, academia that's providing different takes on continuing education, lifelong learning. And you've got trade and professional associations who are often providing like certification paths and you know CE to support certifications and, and those sorts of things. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of conversation between those groups in, in my experience or coordination or, or trying to think comprehensively about how they can work together to address the, the need for workplace learning, the upskilling, the reskilling, the, the career paths of the people that, that they all want to serve. I mean, what's, what's your pr- perspective on that? It's interesting because I recently wrote about the uh, Google Career Certificate Programs. Phenomenally successful. Google has really cracked the nut on this. They have six career certificates that they're offering, $39 a month through Coursera, for, for an average of six months to complete six courses at 10 hours a week. And so that's a huge piece. More than a million, millions, I'll say, more than a million have already enrolled in various of the six certificate programs, career certificate programs. And what we're finding is that the, probably the most unique and important piece is Google has assembled 150 corporations that have agreed to accept the the Google certificates as the benchmark for entry level positions. And they've even created portals to directly apply. So those who get a certificate directly can apply to any of these 150 and they're ranked right up there. And in the case of Google, they consider it the equivalent of a degree. Now, some in higher ed, in my uh, raising the writing about this and discussion, some discussion has arisen uh, in higher ed saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, we need a little bit of context. We need, you know, some liberal arts. and But nothing precludes this from being integrated into formal education. And in fact, Google has offered it free to the nearly 2,000 community colleges in the United States. And, you know, charging that $39 when when tuition starts at 150, probably, even at most community colleges up to 500 or $1,000 for one credit hour. And on top of all of that, ACE, the American Council on Education, has recommended that academic credit be given for these certificates. So all of this is coming together and we do have to partner and we do have to be relevant, efficient, and economical. Those are the three touchstones, relevant, efficient, and economical. We can't sustain $1.7 trillion in student debt. You know, we, we need to make this affordable and we've got to do it efficiently we have to respect the learner's time. And what Google is proposing is certainly doable and it's, it can be integrated. So I see that we can integrate these into other corporate training. You could say, well, we really like your you know, data analytics certificate. We'd like to add our own one or two. So complete that and we've got a capstone specific to our corporation, to our learning, And once you complete that, we put you at the top of our employment list. 
relevant, efficient, economical. I think that's a, that's a great mantra there. We might have the title for this episode in, the, <laughs> in those three words. Um, certainly great advice. One of the things that um, really struck me about the, the, the Google story when, when you wrote about this, because you made that comment about you know, $39 average of six months, uh, but then that they had these 150 major companies that are really considering it a benchmark. So, I mean, clearly Google had made an effort to understand what those companies need and to deliver that in, in the form of this um, certificate that they're providing. And I just... I don't see that often enough in working with organizations that are offering certificates. They, they, they create the certificate because it sounds like a good idea, but they haven't really figured out if that's aligning with what an employer is going to value. And that's at a minimum, I think that's one of those points of conversation that needs to improve uh, going forward. Jeff, you're right. You know, one of the things I, I also written about that I fear too often uh, we in higher ed teach through the rear view mirror. We, we teach what happened three years, five years, even if, if we use a textbook, it's two years old before it, it's in our hands. We're, we're teaching things behind us. We're not teaching ahead. And that's what we need to do. And I think that's what Google gets. And that's what employers get. And that's what, what the employees need to receive. Well, we've been giving a good bit of it, or you've been giving a good bit of it uh, as we've been going along, uh, it being advice that I think learning businesses should live by. But but if you had to offer kind of include in conclusion here, one piece of advice for organizations that are in that business of continuing education, professional development, lifelong learning, what do they really need to be doing now to ensure that they're going to thrive in, in the coming year and beyond? I think really they lean to what we just said. It's looking at, I think this, we are in a fast moving river. The current is very fast and there are rapids ahead in this fourth industrial revolution. We need to understand blockchain, where we're going. We need to understand AI. And I think AI, you know, is the biggest technology for all of us that we're going to see so much moving forward as far as AI tutors, AI assistants, AI instructors, constantly adapting and forward-looking. So I would say all of our units need to be forward-looking. Don't teach to today, teach to tomorrow. A senior fellow at both the University of Illinois Springfield and the University Professional and Continuing Education Association, Ray Schroeder is a leading expert in online education. You can learn more about his work and find links to the many articles and columns he's written and continues to write and the reading lists he curates at rayschroeder.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn and Twitter. Ray brings decades of experience and insight to the work he shares, and we highly recommend following him. Indeed, we do. We're big followers of Ray ourselves, and he is a fantastic resource for those learning businesses that want to be forward-looking. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 288, you'll find a link to Ray's website, full show notes, and a transcript and other resources. You'll also find options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss future episodes, we encourage you to subscribe, and subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcast. So Lisa and I personally appreciate it. And those reviews and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. 
Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. Lastly, please spread the word about Leading Learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 288, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.